0: Tonight we're going to look at the exile and the return from exile. Um, I said last week the exile uh, had one good thing about it, uh, namely that the Israelites weren't chasing after other gods after the exile. That pretty much did away with idolatry. Um, And you'd kind of be surprised about that. You would think that that uh, uh, they'd be stuck in foreign lands. You might think that they might pursue some of the gods of those foreign lands. But in reality, the exact opposite took hold. They finally learned their lesson. Um, It is this context, by the way, and and I wanna us I I kinda wanna turn our our eyes to scripture for just a moment. Uh, It's in this context that we find Jeremiah chapter 29. Everybody knows verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. What we often don't talk about is the context of those words. This is actually a letter that Jeremiah was writing to some of the early exiles. So we'll talk about in just a second. There are three different exiles out of Jerusalem. There's, there's 605, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes over uh, and, and takes captives back to Babylon. That's where Daniel and his three friends go out is during that exile. Then there's a second exile in 597. That's where most of the capable folks are taken out by all of the, all, all, all of, um, all the craftsmen and all, all the folks with great skills and that kind of stuff. Most of them are taken out in 597. And then in, uh, 586, when the city's destroyed, is the third exile. And that's where the majority of folks that are taken are taken in exile. But it's, it's this group that, that is exiled in 597 to which Jeremiah writes the words. I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord That is a good summary. First of all, it's a a great word. But secondly, it's a good summary of the exile experience of many Jews. They were taken into exile, uh, uh, I told you, in three different ways, all under the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. He is the greatest of the Babylonian kings. And so so when we get to Nebuchadnezzar, there's a reason that Daniel has a vision and Nebuchadnezzar is the head of bold. That, that That's because of his greatness. He is responsible for the hanging gardens, which were one of the wonders of the ancient world. He is responsible for many military victories. He was quite the statesman, had Babylon at the height of its power. He was a masterful builder as well, building uh, all kinds of things all over his empire. Those three exiles we've already mentioned, um, in 605, we don't know exactly how many uh, went out, uh, but we do know that it was pretty much all young men. So the young men who were nobles, who were, had good status, he's, he's looking to train leaders. So he hits the jackpot when he gets Daniel and his three friends, right? You know, That's exactly who he was looking for in that exile. In 597, the Bible tells us in 2 Kings 24 that about 10,000 people went out, most of them skilled highly skilled individuals. And so these are folks that can serve the king of Babylon. These are folks who can engage in his building projects and who can engage in government affairs. These are the folks who can really uh, add benefit to Babylon, and so he takes them. And then in 586, with the fall of the city, the Bible tells us that almost everyone, just the poorest of the land, were left in Jerusalem. That's in 2 Kings 25. By the way, just for context, it had to be a pretty good deal because uh, in, in the second return, there were listed 42,360 people returning. And that's on top of servants and others as well. Um, so nearly 50,000 people came back to the promised land in one of the returns. And so you know if that's, if that's the case... must have been a pretty substantial number of folks that left in the first place. After Nebuchadnezzar were some uh, kings that just really couldn't, really couldn't cut the mustard. Uh... Amel Marduk is known as evil Merodach in the Bible. He reigns for a couple of years after Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one, uh, Jehoiachin was put in prison by Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who releases him, possibly by some of the bidding of Daniel, actually, because Daniel is present during this time in Babylon. Uh, uh, His successor, Neriglissar. Yeah, some of these names are going to get kind of fun. So just hang on. Uh, he might be the one that released Jeremiah from prison in Jeremiah 39. We're not sure, uh, possible, but not exactly sure on that. Um, And there was a successor after him that just reigned for a couple months that I'm not even going to, you know what, I'll try it. Labashi Marduk uh, just reigns for a couple months. And then he's, uh, he's assassinated and Nabonidus becomes king. He he starts restoring some of the ancient religious practices, but he really upsets a lot of people in Babylon by basically forsaking Marduk. In fact, for a time, he leaves Babylon altogether and moves to an area in southeast Edom as his capital. And when he does that, uh, he makes Belshazzar the co-regent ruling from Babylon, while he is ruling from the other city, and uh, in fact, it, things get so bad in Babylon, people people are in such, uh, uh, such so opposed to to Nabonidus that when he comes back to Babylon in 539 and tries to reinstitute the religious practices, the the foment of rebellion has already started. And so when, when Cyrus walks in and takes Jerusalem in 539, he's not a conqueror of Jerusalem. They, the Babylonians, call him their liberator because they view this king as so bad. So anyway, that's some of the kings. Let's take a look at some of the prophets at the time. Uh, some, of, some of the individuals in scripture. A uh, couple of notes that, that I want you to notice about this period of time. When you look at prophecies written after the exile, they are remarkably more positive than before the exile. Before the exile, there is idolatry and there is terrible oppression among Jews and there's all sorts of problems going on and the prophets are railing against all the sins of the people. There's a little bit of note of hope every now and then that God is going to restore them, but the big promise is, but you need to repent because you're about to be punished. Right? After the exile happens, there's some false prophets at the beginning, but for the most part, the language of the right prophets, the true prophets, becomes a lot more positive. Jeremiah's note really summarizes this well. Make, make, make yourself a living. Buy homes, get wives, have children, get them married. Pray for the welfare of your city because as, as, as it does well, you're going to do well too. I'm not abandoning you. I know the plans I have for you because trust me, it's a whole lot more positive tone that the prophets take. And like, I mean, you know, understandably so, right? They're in the midst of God's punishment. Now the need changes from a message of repentance to a message of hope and restoration. Not only, uh, um, not only that, but they also pick up something that's not been that's been in prophecies to this point but it hasn't been highlighted in the same kind of way. And that is the hope of the messianic reign. You see the reemergence of Messiah. So when you look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1 through 32 is a whole lot of devastation. And then in 33, he receives a second commissioning. Almost like God had said, okay, now your role is, is still the same role, but now I'm giving you a new word because the day has changed. And so from 33 on, Ezekiel becomes a lot more about the restoration, especially by the time you get to chapter 40 and beyond. There's a new hope for Israel. There's there's wrath coming upon their enemies. But for Israel, Israel's gonna be remade. The temple, the water flowing from under the temple down the cliffs into the Dead Sea, making the Dead Sea thrive with life. Beautiful imagery that Ezekiel uses. So you'll see a lot of this kind of messianic look uh, in prophets of this period. Obadiah is one of those prophets that might be during this period. There is some speculation on Obadiah possibly being much, much earlier or possibly being during this time. If he's writing during this time, he's writing about Edom's uh, uh, terrible treatment of the Jews who have been overrun by Babylon. Instead of helping their brothers, remember Edom are the sons of of Ishmael, okay? So rather than helping out their Jewish brethren, they pile on top of them. When the Babylonians uh, come in and take them, the Edomites are there not only cheering on Babylon, but coming in to ransack what's left behind. Obadiah says, you're going to face the wrath of God for that. Sometime by about, definitely by 300, but possibly even around 450, Edom ceases to exist, and they are taken over by the innovations. Jeremiah is on the tail end of his ministry during his exile, He's, he, he really, his, his ministry mostly goes from the days of Josiah to the fall of Jerusalem. But even after that, he's still important. In fact, um, when, when they kill Gedaliah, who was set up as, as the governor of Judah uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, when they kill him, a whole group of them go to flee to Egypt. And Jeremiah is saying, don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. That, it's not gonna work out for you. So what do they do? They take him. <laughs> they make him go too, even against his wishes. He probably dies in Egypt a few years later. But, but his ministry is really on the tail end there. Um, that letter that he sent to the group of exiles, I say here the first group, that should be second group. So that, that's my apologies there. Uh, he tried to warn Judah um, to repent of their idolatry and to submit to Babylonian rule, but they wouldn't listen to him. Um, if you judge a prophet based on the size of his church, If you judge a preacher based on the size of his church, Jeremiah is a failure. He hardly gets anybody to follow after God. But if you judge him based on faithfulness, he stands as one of the greatest prophets. He wrote the book of Jeremiah and he wrote Lamentations, probably through his scribe, Baruch. In fact, Jeremiah describes one point in the book where the prophecies that were written down already got destroyed by the king. And so uh, God tells Jeremiah, write another book. So write everything down and let's add to it some more stuff um, because God's word is not going to be silenced. We see the ministry of Ezekiel in this time. He actually, when we first meet him, he's at the river Kabar in Babylon. He is with a group of these exiles uh, in, in 586. And so he gives us a glimpse of life in exile. And what's interesting about Ezekiel is that he has, this, um, he has this interesting perspective. Up to this point, prophets were, well, let's just put it this way, true prophets, not false prophets, but true prophets weren't exactly the um, most trusted authority. Um, let me put it this way. Time and time again they were proven true, but time and time again they were ignored and imprisoned and mistreated. But yet they kept speaking the words of God. Ezekiel enjoys a prominence among the exiles. In fact, it says a couple of times in, in the book of Ezekiel, God tells him that um, that the, the elders of the people will come to you to hear the word of God. There's a recognition. Even if we don't follow what he says, there's a recognition that he's speaking the truth. And that's something that old prophets would have loved to have had, but didn't. But as their words were proven true, people began to realize, hey, these prophets of God, they they really are worth listening to. And so eventually, by the time of uh, prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, we'll talk about a little bit later, the, those are prophets that have great esteem among the people because there's now a whole set of 300 plus years of prophets that are proclaiming the word of God to the people of God. And now they can see that, hey, the words are really coming true. And, and they're beginning to distinguish between the false prophets and the genuine prophets. Daniel is also during this period. Now, Daniel is going to span over Babylonian and Persian periods. Daniel, we get this picture of Daniel as this young guy, and he was when he first went to Babylon. But by the time Cyrus issues his decree to send Israelites back, Daniel is 80 years old, at least. So you have Daniel taken in 605, along with the other young nobles, he is, he's got a great wisdom. He's able to interpret dreams. He's, he's an incredible administrator, too. So you know the king definitely loves Daniel, and Daniel keeps getting elevated in position. By the time that he is uh, in, in Darius's reign, he is one of the top three government officials under the king. And so you've got this—you've got this guy that everything he touches turns to gold. And so the, he he has an audience with the king in both Babylon and in uh, in Persia. Life in exile is interesting. It's mostly positive. In in the area of Judah, local folks are ruling. The elders were pretty much established. Nebuchadnezzar didn't just wipe out everything. He took a lot. And many of the capable rulers went with him, but there were others who were there, tribal elders especially, that that kind of helped things run from day to day. Not only that, he also gave them some different liberty. Uh, uh, captives were able to move around and correspond with each other. They weren't they weren't just this wasn't like you can't leave your house or you can only go out when we tell you to. This was you pretty much had free reign to move around. As long as you weren't inciting any sort of revolt, Nebuchadnezzar was cool with it. He doesn't mind, you know. Um, Jehoiachin uh, is given favor, especially after Nebuchadnezzar's death. Um, He's actually given a spot at the king's table uh, and is given a position of honor. Jewish captives were treated well in their new communities. They had thriving businesses, they were upstanding citizens. Uh, kind of interesting that that life was, in many cases, a lot easier after exile. No wonder Jeremiah was saying, just give in to Babylonian rule, because <laughs> he knew that once, once they submitted to the punishment of God, that their lives would actually be a lot better. Isn't it that way sometimes? You fight God, you fight God, you fight God, it's terrible, but once you submit to God, even under punishment, there's still a freedom that comes from knowing you are in God's will. There is a still humiliation. You are captives. You are ruled by someone else. You don't rule yourself. And there's, there, is, there is a humiliation that comes from that. Um, there, there are taxes you still have to pay and there are still burdens you have to bear. But it's not as bad as it could have been. There are some false prophets early on, but eventually folks learn not to listen to them. That pretty much is kind of a, a situation of, of the Babylonian period. Now, in 559, a new king rises in Persia. He's a Mede by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus is, um, he is a, he's an incredibly capable ruler himself, and By 539, he has taken over Babylon. As I said, like a liberator coming in to rescue Babylon from their terrible ruler, Nabonidus. Um, He releases, almost within a year, he ends up releasing the Jews to go back to their homeland. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was basically okay with you going around anywhere you wanted to go, except you can't go back home. That's the one thing you can't do. Uh, Cyrus says, go back home. Rebuild your land. In fact, here, let me give you some money to help you. Let me give you some some uh, uh, royal kindness along the way. Let me let me help you by giving you uh, a commission to rebuild your temple and worship your God. This is something that he did with many different groups. He was he was a very religiously conciliatory king, and so he would he would ask you just here rebuild your stuff. I'm going to give you. Funds from the Royal Treasury. You'll have access to the materials, the craftsmen that you need. You know, I'll provide. I'll provide supervisors for the work that really know how to build stuff. I'm going to help you build your temple so that you can pray to your God for my welfare. He is the kind that says, "Just yeah, yeah. You pray. You pray for me. I don't care who your God is. I want them all on my side." There you go. You know. So, so he actually loosens up things a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't so tight hand fisted on it, but but even still, there were some restrictions that under Cyrus begin to be lifted. And in fact, uh, he didn't really have to worry about revolt because life was good under Cyrus. I mean, generally good. Yeah, you had to pay taxes and stuff, but you know, you had to you had to do certain things, but life was pretty good. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on some of the Persian kings because I can't say some of their names, but Darius the first is one to point out. You can try to pronounce that name if you want. That one's even a little far for me. Um, he redistricted a lot of the empire. So what happened was there was, there were, uh, when, when Cyrus took over Arius, he didn't really do anything with the local structure. But by the days of Darius, there were revolts popping up in different places, and some of them pretty intense. So Darius said, you know what, I'm I'm going to redistrict everything. I'm going to draw new lines. I'm going to put new judges, give them circuits to do. I'm going to to establish uh, new government centers in various places so that the tendency to revolt wouldn't be as strong because I broke up that area that's revolting into different groups, and now their power is uh spread out and thinned out rather than all concentrated in one area. This is the king of by the way Darius I is the king when Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. He's the king then. He is also the one who uh got his tail in handed to him by the Greeks at Marathon. So if you've heard of the famous uh battle of Marathon where uh the the guy runs the twenty-six point two miles uh, to deliver news of the battle from from I can't remember what city it is between there and Marathon. It's twenty-six point two miles. That's why a marathon is twenty-six point two miles today. It happens in that battle. That happened that battle in four hundred and ninety. Xerxes the uh, first in in your Bible. You can read the book of Esther. He's the he's the king Ahasuerus. Um, Artaxerxes, his, his successor, was the king during the returns when Ezra and Nehemiah led groups back into Jerusalem. So those stories take place during his reign. In fact, Xerxes is king, uh, during, I believe, in the first few chapters of Ezra. when. No, 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 it's not Xerxes, I'm sorry. It's Cyrus that's king in those first few chapters when Zerubbabel and, and that group come back. There are some Jews that decided not to leave. They had the opportunity, but they didn't leave. In fact, many Jews. In fact, um, scholars estimate that a majority of the Jews did not leave. Life was good. They had good businesses. There was really no desire. They had grown up away from the promised land, many of them born in exile. And so there was just no need to move. This is where the Jewish diaspora really comes from, is this period of exile. Where there are Jews in major cities all over the place. And it's that diaspora that's going to play in a lot to the days of the New Testament. But, um, some that did stay, Daniel, uh, he stayed in Persia. So, so 80, 90, 100 year old Daniel is, is still there. Um, by the, by the days of Darius, he's got to be hit, he's got to be close to 100 by the time he's thrown in the lion's den. We always, have you ever seen a book? with Daniel in the lion's den, and it's, and it's this young kid. No, he's a hundred-year-old guy at this point. He's close to it. If he's not a hundred, he's close to it. And he's going into a den of lions, perfectly safe. It kind of adds a new level to the faith because, hey, this guy's been walking with God for almost a century, if not a full century. No wonder he has the faith to do that. No wonder he doesn't change either, because old people don't like to change, right? That's right. Yeah. He's seen enough in his day. Kind of adds a whole new level on that story. Hey, I'm getting old, so I'm getting like that too. Um, Esther. Esther is queen during the reign of Xerxes I. 483 is when that story begins. So just kind of peg that on your timeline. She is obviously the niece of Mordecai and she saves the Jews by petitioning the king for her people. If you'll remember the story, Haman uh, tries and gets the king to uh, put a signet ring on a decree that all the Jews would be killed on a certain day of the year. I think it's like the 12th of Adar. Um, and God ends up saving his people through Esther being in the right time in the right place for such a time as this, right? Now Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim, and it is, it's one that I'd love, there's a couple things that I'd love to do. One of the things I'd love to do is spend a Purim with a Jewish family because it is, apparently, so I'm told, it is a blast. They have so much fun on this feast. I mean, if y'all ever heard of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where, like, you're watching the movie and you're, like, yelling at the screen and, and, and all kinds of stuff when certain characters come on. That's what they do during this feast. They read the story of Esther and whenever Haman's name comes up, they jeer at him and hiss at him and, and they boo him and all kinds of stuff. And so, so they have, they have a ball with this feast. And so, uh, anyway, the Feast of Purim comes from this story, it comes from the poor. Poor were these kind of things that, Kind of like lots or or dice or some kind of way of determining what the will of the gods were. And so purim is the plural for poor. So it's um that that's where feast gets its name. While many of the Jews, most of the Jews, stayed in exile, some did return. And there were in fact three different returns. So just as there were three different exiles, there were three different returns. The first one happens by Cyrus's decree. Around 538, 537, somewhere in there. Um, Sheshbazar is the actual leader of this, but Zerubbabel, he apparently dies shortly after getting back to Jerusalem. And so Zerubbabel kind of takes over as the leader. Uh, this is where the, the temple is rebuilt. Uh, they laid the foundation in 536. It's not until 515 that the temple is finished because of opposition. So if you'll remember, uh, this is told in the story of Ezra. Uh, uh, the book of Ezra, chapters one through six, describes this story. Um, and so it really takes until Darius's, what, sixth year that the temple is completed because uh, of this layover uh, from about 536 to 520 that no work is able to be done because of the opposition. Finally, it gets finished. Um, the Haggai and Zechariah are major prophets at this time. They have minor books. They have real small books, but they are both uh, intentionally um, trying to persuade the people to do the work of building the temple uh, and influencing Zerubbabel to keep up with the task, that it's hard, but God is with you and you can do it kind of a thing. The second return happens uh, about 80 years later in 458. Ezra 7 through 10 tell about this return. Ezra is the one who's leading this group. Ezra was a scribe and a priest. And so he's from the, the Aaronic priesthood and he is uh, leading the people. He knows the scriptures. He's teaching it to the people, uh, leading revival while he's there. Um, there's about, it, the Bible tells us that there are about 1,500 men in the group um, and they are, they have uh, gifts from the king to, to go do the work to encourage the worship of God. And Ezra basically leads revival. He leads them to get rid of foreign wives and tries to rebuild the walls, but there's opposition. And because of that opposition, he pretty much has to stop. And shortly thereafter, in 445, uh, a third group comes. The cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, was a man by the name of Nehemiah. We recently walked through the book of Nehemiah, uh, so we know this story well, but Nehemiah leads a third group of exiles, or returnees, I guess, back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the wall in 52 days, most likely in some places just kind of fixing up what was there, uh, in other places having to rebuild more extensively. Um, But... He also led reforms. Apparently, some of them between Ezra and Nehemiah started getting foreign wives again, and so he had to deal with that. He There was oppressive lending tactics where, where people would um, basically force individuals to sell their property because they couldn't afford uh, uh, what they needed, and then were charging such high rents and, and charging such oppressive fees for for um, you being able to farm on my land, that it was, it was hurting the people and it was causing problems. So Nehemiah put a stop to that. Um, he, he did all kinds of different reforms. He led them in reading the law and uh, trying to apply the law. Uh, he, Nehemiah was one of those that I, I honestly think, um, I would sure love a Nehemiah type of leader uh, in this day and age. Because you know how much good it would do us to have a guy that's this unconcerned with what people say about you that just does the work that God wants him to do. He's faithful to it. One more person that needs to be mentioned. It's another prophet and his name is Malachi. Malachi, either toward the tail end of Nehemiah or just after Nehemiah, really comes, comes about. Sure enough, things have gotten good, and so people have gotten lax, and they're just not as concerned about doing things God's way anymore. And so he preaches against them. He, he reminds them that you can't rob God. He does this dispute where he'll, he'll say something, he'll pose a response that the people give, whether it's a response that they would actually say or just one they demonstrate by their actions. He would pose their response and then answer with God's rebuttal and show them that they really are guilty and that God really is just and right. He is the final voice from God before we turn into the New Testament. I caution, I wrote the final writing prophet of the OT. I didn't write the final prophet of the OT because uh, R.C. Sproul said one time that his favorite Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. The reason he said that is because Jesus hadn't come yet. So that's kind of the thing. He he says, even though he appears in the New Testament, he's still an Old Testament prophet. And he is. So he's not the last Old Testament prophet, but he is the last one to write. Uh, in 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 the scripture, so that describes the exile and the return. Any questions that relate to this? I don't remember. I'm not going to ask you, but... you, I don't mind you asking. I know that. I know that for um, for some of y'all, uh, history is kind of. It might be a little bit boring. It might be a little bit tedious. But hopefully this has given you a good sense of what is going on and how it's going, the whole chronology, so that as you read your Bible, you can look at it and say, oh, yeah, OK, now I know where we are. You know, when, when you read a name, it's like I have heard that name before or or that you, you read a certain you read a certain thing and you can kind of tag it to a time period. And know, okay, all right, I've kind of, I kind of got my bearings. I know what's going on and you can better understand what God has written in scripture. Um, if you were to take one lesson away from exile and return, it's that God, God is in this continual process. Sanctification is not something that happens right away. It's not something that he does immediately. Yes, he saves us from sin and we are saved, uh, uh, we are saved. There's no there's no back and forth about that, nothing. But we're still in process. And the exile and return, specifically to me, show me a people who are in process. And sometimes that process is kind of bad. And sometimes that process is kind of good. And sometimes we make a lot of headway. And sometimes we fall back a bit. And we need some help. But we're always in process. God's not done with any of us, is he? He wouldn't be done with Israel. They'd, they'd have to wait 400 some years before they heard his voice again. But man, what a voice when they heard it. Just know, whether, whether you're in a period of opulence and ease or a period of captivity and difficulty, whether you're in a day where the king's heart is right and we're doing good things to serve God or you're in a day where the king is evil. Whether you live in a time where people are following after God or turning away from God, God's not abandoning you. Be faithful to him and you'll see him work his plan. All in due time. Pray with me. Father, help us learn that lesson. Help us learn that you have a plan for us and you know that plan. <laughs> it's not a plan you're trying to figure out, it's one you've already got. And it's not a plan that's going to be thwarted. It's a plan that's successful just because it comes from you. It's a plan that you've sworn and you will not change your mind. Just as, just as you said, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, you say, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. So Father, even though we're constantly changing, even though history is, is ebbing and flowing and the roller coaster ride of ups and downs of, of spiritual vitality and spiritual neglect, no matter where we happen to be, you're still God the unchanging, perfect God. So help us be faithful to you. Help us trust you, follow you, love you, no matter what our days look like. Thank you for being the God whose story defines our story and for being willing to bring us along for the ride. Help us to be good stewards of all you've done and all you are. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.